G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Okay, well, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to our listeners the uh, venerable Dr. Judd Burton. Thank you very much for uh, agreeing to uh, appear on the show. Absolutely. Yeah, you've uh, you've certainly contributed some uh, significant work and uh, as we were saying earlier, some more interesting stuff to come as well, which I'm really looking forward to. So yeah, it's great to have you here to be able to uh, discuss a few things uh, certainly relevant to our audience here on, on this podcast. We're all about the giants in the Bible from a biblical perspective and we've been creeping and crawling our way through the primeval history over the last one and a half seasons of the show so far, we've got a long way to go before we get to uh, Genesis 11. We're currently halfway through Genesis 2 and exploring the Garden of Eden. So at some point a little later, I'll get your thoughts on that too. Certainly. Perhaps for the benefit of our listeners, Judd, if you wouldn't mind uh, telling us a little bit about yourself. Who is Dr. Judd Burton? Where does he come from? And uh, why am I talking to you as a, as a Christian authority on the biblical giants well I'll, I'll try and make my introduction not sound like david copperfield from charles dickens but uh, i'm i'm primarily a, a historian of of religion uh, my phd is in in the history with a focus on religion early christianity the greco-roman world but I, I also have teaching fields in you know antiquities and american history and my master's degree is in anthropology and archaeology both of those are from Texas Tech University. I've always had a long-standing interest in the past, and especially you know how biblical perspectives on on world history can maybe tease out some new insights uh, about the history of human societies on on planet, and their interaction with the supernatural uh, as well. So I, I sort of wear the proverbial shoes of three different professions because I've I, I do the document work as a historian, the the sort of ethnographic. Uh, oral history work as a an anthropologist and uh, have certainly done my, my share of field archaeology uh, over the course of a couple of decades. I, I've worked in Israel. Uh, a lot of people will probably be familiar with my work at, at uh, Panaeus or Caesarea Philippi, uh, about which I wrote my dissertation. I, I've done work in uh, uh, Mexico, Peru, all over the American Southwest, Texas, done work in Ireland, and who knows where, where, yeah, there are pro- probably other projects, or there are other projects looming on the horizon. But I'd like to think that I bring a, a just historiographically speaking, and that I bring a more comprehensive kind of approach, a synthetic approach to to the study of the topic at, at hand. In, in terms of my faith, I, uh, I I became a Christian when I was ten years old. I, I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church. Not, by the way, a place where you're introduced to topics like the biblical giants with any sort of of vigor or or enthusiasm, uh, you know, in the in the strange sort of 1980s playground that I grew up in, you know, it was the that was the age of of uh, you know great epic movies, you know, like the Star Wars original Star Wars trilogy and uh, lots of sword and sorcery stuff like Conan and the Beastmaster and you know, so mythology was just sort of it was sort of plastered all over the place, and that's what got me interested in in mythology too. And I thought, gosh, there's some there's some passages in the Bible that that almost sound, you know, mythological. You know, at that point in time, I sort of thought that it it was kind of heretical to think about it in that terms. But of course, I didn't. I wasn't thinking about mythology then, like I am now. But sort of in, you know, in, from the wonderment uh, of childhood, um, you know, I sort of fell in love with the the narrative, you know, the dramatic narrative of the Bible. I think that with all the the influences that I had from my family and in the church, pushed me along in this direction. Another influence was a, the the um, brother-in-law of the pastor of the church that I grew up in was an archaeologist and a, a professor of New Testament. And I, I later studied Greek and archaeology un, under him. But he, he took me under his wing when I was pretty young, about nine or ten, because I, I would always go to the Bible studies that he would come over and, and, and direct. I was the annoying little, you know, kid that would stay around afterwards and ask him all the questions about the archaeological expeditions he had been on. Like and uh, that was the late Dr. George Knight. He was a dear soul, brilliant, brilliant man. And I've I mentioned him a number of times, 
you know, on, on podcasts, but he's, he was just such an influence on me. And in fact, it was him that suggested that I go to dig at Banyas. He, he was probably seeing things in my interest, you know, as a young college student that I didn't even know about at the time. Long story short, that's, that's how I got to where I'm at right now in terms of, of upbringing and education, world travel experiences, that sort of thing. Oh, I can certainly identify with, uh, yeah, hang, hanging around after the, the message and asking questions. <laughs> that, that's that's me. I tend to uh, be that guy who bails up the pastor after the sermon and uh, wants, wants to talk <laughs> right. more about it. Uh, incidentally, my pastor actually comes from Texas. He's uh, he's a Texas tech boy as well. Is that right? Well, how about that? Your guns well, up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I want to get your thoughts because I talk about this a bit in my book and I like to get other people's perspectives on it too. What does it mean to you to be a child of God? Well, I suppose there, there are a number of levels. You know, we can talk about the salvific you know, issue, which, which is the, at the, the heart of the matter. That's the, the intimate saving relationship, you know, that we enter into. But it's also a kind of restoration as well. You know, it, it's it's um you know not I, not to retread paths that have already been blazed. You know, Mike uh, Mike Heiser. You know, he talks a lot about about how you know at one point in time we were part of part of an echelon of the divine council and the the whole you know Jesus's mission to Caesarea Philippi, uh, Peneus, You know, is kind of functional in the restoration of our position as sons of God. Yeah. Um, you know, and that that's it. That that's echoed in other other books in the New Testament, notably James. Uh, but the the what's implied there, and what what what's spelled out in in other places, is that that's that's what it is. Is it's a restoration. It's God bringing us back to back to not only uh, communion with Him, but our, you know whatever role we're supposed to play. You know, under the auspices of that divine council, and that. That's huge. I mean, that's yeah. You know, most yeah. people don't think about about their walk or or their their salvation relationship in those terms, but that's exactly what it is. Uh, and and what a not what a huge privilege, but it, it it's it's a it should be a guiding responsibility, you know, and a, a yeah. feeling of obligation too. So yeah, those those are the things that occur to me now in terms of of what it means to be a child of God, a son of God. Yeah, absolutely. I think we definitely have that sense that when we become allegiant to Jesus Christ and and we embrace the the journey that that is our uh, sanctification, we are in that yeah. moment declared children of God. But then our life is spent sort of becoming that. Yes. Yeah. What a glorious destiny! I yeah, it, it blows my mind thinking about it. I I, I know. I know. It's it's uh it's better than Lord of the Rings. It's better than Star Wars. You know. It, it's you know we're in the midst of of all of that, and it's 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 really quite amazing and humbling to be to feel that you're even a part of of that overarching story. You know that that unfolding story of creation and the fall, and then the restoration, and it's it's just it's really quite something. And unfortunately, there are more and more pulpits from which that that end of the message is not really coming through. That's right. Yeah, I see that just missing from so many contexts where it would really enliven the, the Christian experience. Right. People sort of that's, embracing that. That's well said. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, we've uh, we've talked a little about uh, things that you've studied and some of your interests and, and whatnot. Uh, and you're obviously uh, a big pop culture fan as well. Uh, yes. So, yeah, tell us about uh, some of the, the things that, that really uh, pique your interest, get you thinking, and uh, stuff that's maybe influenced the, the way that you've approached your, your your life's work. Of course, the Giants, the Watchers, the Antediluvian World, all of that stuff, that's always on my radar. But I'm currently probably the most interested in the origins, the pre-flood origins of the, the kind of folkloric monsters that you find in, in world tradition, things that also get peripheralized by most biblical studies uh, approaches, things like vampires and werewolves and chimera of all kinds and ghouls and revenants and, uh, you know, things that are really perennial in world culture 
uh, like other kinds of mythologies. But it seems to me that there's a clear link between those kinds of demonic entities, the, the manifestations of those demonic entities, and precedents that are in the pre-flood world, particularly as relate to the, the judgments that are handed down to the giants and, and the, the fates of their their spirits. Yeah, that's, that, that's really what's immediately on my radar. And of course, I, I, we were talking before the, the recording, uh, esteemed Doug Van Dorn and myself are, are working on a project dealing with the Serpent Mound of Bashan uh, and all the, all of the overlapping layers of meaning that are involved in that, that intersect with the, the world of the giants, the Nakash from the garden, the Serpent Sea, the alignments with, with constellations at certain times. It's, it's, uh, it's been quite a, a wild ride and we're not done with it yet with this forthcoming paper that he and I are finishing. I take influences, that may be more of an answer than you wanted, but I take influences for probably some some places that people might not expect. Like, you know, I was very influenced by Jared Diamond when I was in graduate school, and he's by no means a, a person of faith or or he's a strict, you know, natural evolutionist. But yet I found his approach to world history valuable insofar as that he he looks at at, at causation in, in kind of a different way, you know, in, in his um, explanation of why the Spanish were able to overpower the Inca in the 15th, in the uh, 16th century, rather, that there were all these causes in the old world that had been set up millennia before um, that clash between Pizarro and Atahualpa, causes that involved geography and epidemiology and environmental factors and the ease of spread of technology, the uh, in, the, uh, in terms of the epidemiology, the herd animals that were kept in the old world and, and the kind of generational inoculation that they got against bovine diseases like anthrax and smallpox. And that's why they were so virulent, you know, when they were taken to the new world because they didn't have herd animals there. And I right. thought this this is really interesting because he's talking about a drastic negative change brought on by a technologically superior force not braver or more intelligent but they were just set up to be the the superior force in this equation because of all the things that had happened thousands of years before they even left europe and i thought that is a very similar scenario to what happens with the fall of the watchers and its impact on human culture because at the time whatever timeline people subscribe to whether they're old earth or, or young earth we're talking about a biblical prehistory before the flood you know i think he, both young earthers and old earthers can agree that we were essentially hunter gatherers and horticulturalists at that point in time and the amount of drastic change that took place from being horticulturalists and hunter gatherers for that long i mean it's this 90 degree angle uh, you know, cultural trajectory change. Really, the only way that we see that happen in human societies, when human societies impact one another, is that you you have this vastly technologically superior uh, uh, group of people who are either either through commerce or or or, or conquest completely decimate a culture and change its cultural trajectory because of the near universality the near perennial nature of hunting and gathering and horticulturalism before the flood the only kind of you know the emergence of, of basically city city state dwelling civilization if you will the only way that that happens those kinds, the, those levels of drastic changes had to have been brought on by a superior, technologically superior outside force. The only candidates for that in the pre-flood world are celestial beings. That's right. Uh, that's right. And I, and I think, think that, that the, that's what uh, is alluded to if we connect the, the human history that Genesis 4 gives us. Yes. The little key that just unlocks all that in, in Genesis 6, and then you look... Mm-hmm back and go ah that's how all that happened yeah yeah absolutely i mean it's it it really does line up with the the genesis narrative i mean it it, you know and there are certainly post-flood implications but to my mind we're talking about the end of the the late pleistocene era the young young if for people that are familiar with geologic history not to get too archaeology nerd on everybody but i think we're looking at that window you know of transition 
uh, is what we're talking about. And, you know, there's so much going on, not just with the Watchers, but their progeny in the pre-flood world that helped to explain some of the unanswered questions that we have about the late Pleistocene era. For instance, the uh, near extinction of, of almost every species of megafauna from Macedon and mammoth and and uh, even some you know predators like short-faced bear and dire wolves and uh you know just just a whole swath of of, of these huge mammals and one of the theories that's tinted is a kind of unknown agent uh hypothesis and this is actually a, an academic you know theory oddly enough them basically saying well we don't know you know there was an agent at work there but we don't know well when you when you read about how insatiable the appetites of the pre-flood giants were, the Nephilim, how bloodthirsty they were, and how they how they consumed all of humanity's resources. You know, it, the overhunting thesis, which is accepted in in conventional academia, and, and it's it's sort of sub-consideration, the unknown agent hypothesis. Well, I, to me, the unknown agent there is giant kind. Yeah. It's it's the Nephilim. Imagine the you know the caloric intake alone, you know for for some of these. Even if we're talking about just fifteen or twenty feet tall, which I think the pre-flood giants were, but they could also be much much taller. Uh, just the body mass, the stresses on the on the. I'm just thinking biomechanically, biomorphologically, the the, the caloric intake needed alone could easily have wiped out uh, these species of megafauna. And so that this this is where my mind goes when I'm thinking about these sorts of projects. And that's why I say I, I take inspiration, you know, from some unlikely places because I wouldn't have expected to be necessarily influenced by somebody who was an evolutionist and yet was such a capable handler of, of cause and effect relationships over broad historical problems and narratives. Yeah. And I think well, that's you, one you of one never of, know where these things are able to intersect and and somewhere in there we we find truth and right they actually do have giant traditions here in australia as well but uh never sure. talked about them because it doesn't fit the mm -hmm. politically correct narrative i'm sure you <laughs> with that story at home as well with the right. uh, native americans oh sure yeah indigenous oral histories and mythologies are are they're completely peripheralized you know mm. at at best um yeah it doesn't matter what continent you're on you could you know it could be africa it could be australia it could be the americas that's part and parcel of how the the enemy works and it also stems a lot from the way that, again that, that we view myth you know we in western languages in particular that word has been so abused and stripped from its etymological roots it, it's like when I hear it now, it's like the way most people use it. It's just it's like nails on down a chalkboard, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, because they're talking it, some but, sort of fanciful falsehood. Right, you know? it's you, equ you equated well talking it, Jack and the Beanstalk right. or something. Yeah. And it, at worst, it's a lie. You know, it's just a it's mm. just a flat out lie. But that's not it at all, because the Greek word muthos does not mean that at all. It means story, usually with some sort of, of religious or philosophical or even historical significance. And this is how people thought about myth in prehistory. It's about how people thought about myth in antiquity. They did not draw the sharp dividing line between what we call history and mythology today. The way that they thought about about different bodies of knowledge was as a, a cohesive synthetic whole. And mythology was not just a, a kind of, as Malinowski put it, it wasn't a, an idle rhapsody. It was really this functional net that kept all of the, the elements, their, their different inquiries, disciplines, if you will, uh, you know, in, in one cooperating uh, sort of uh, corpus. Yeah, they were theological, but they also corresponded to the stars, and by watching the movements of the stars and the planets and celestial bodies that corresponded to their gods, you know, you watch the sky long enough, you begin to derive different levels of higher order mathematics all the way up to calculus, yeah, and you right. can engineer things at that point. And so you've got all of these different, what we would think were, were dissimilar and and compartmentalized levels of inquiry were actually in in the antique and the prehistoric mind all working in synthesis with one that's, another that's right so you've you've got this uh flow on effect from 
these uh, stories about deity that flow through uh, into cosmology and end up like bringing you into the hard sciences and, mm-hmm. and and complex mathematics and all this kind of stuff. And it's all seamless. It's it's part of the general worldview and the cultural understanding as opposed to this compartmentalized uh, discipline that we have today. Yeah, I, I think uh, as we uh, we talked about before before the show, uh, there, there's definitely an effort to divide humanity to separate us to make sure yes. that we don't come to a unified knowledge of the Creator, and we're exactly. getting that through so many different channels. Yeah, and that's why I think your work is important. Uh, where you've been pulling together all these threads from different cultures and civilizations around the place and showing the the connections that used to be uh, well known and are now almost almost invisible. I'm talking about things like uh, linguistic connections and I mean you've done some work on the biblical Rephaim and shown mm-hmm. how that goes right through even to the present day we still have these linguistic connections. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, tell us a little about that. Yeah, well, um, the, what set me down that track was I was I had a dream one night, and I was in the lecture hall at the last college I was I was at, and teaching my my world civilization students. You know, we were talking about um, one of the one of the exercises I used to do with them to to show the relationship between Indo-European languages was to you know examine. You know, take different words from Indo-European languages, like uh, words for um, for fire, ignis, or some version of that. You're going to find in a lot of a lot of the words. Um, words like uh, uh, yoga in Sanskrit, and yogam in Latin, and yoke in English and, and German languages. They're all related. They come from the same Proto-Indo-European root, uh, and they all mean you know to discipline or harness in, in one one way or another. So I would do little things like that to il- illustrate the relationships. And one of the words that I inevitably used uh, was the word for king. And so I, t- I would take Rajan in Sanskrit and uh, uh, Rajan in uh, Linear A Greek and Rex in Latin and, uh, you know, things like Regal and Royal uh, in the Romance languages. So you could see the connective tissue between all of those because they have to do with royalty, with kingship, with rulership. And that's where I woke up in the dream. And I thought, I wonder if there's an, if there's a relationship because I had just, I'd read some stuff on the Rephaim and, and the occurrence of that word in the in other literary traditions in the ancient Near East. And I thought, these all have to do with, with the ancestor cults of dead god kings. And they start with R. I'm wondering if there's a relationship. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And so I wrote a little note down in my, my smartphone, put it back down, and went to sleep. I thought, I better sleep on this a little bit. If I'm a... So I got up the next day, and I'm just ready to get to work on this thing. And <laughs> Every good story starts with a dream. So I'm just, I, I, I'm just, I'm frantic. Okay, you know, it's, it's kind of like, what do I do? What do I do? Uh, so I, 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 okay, I'll start. I'll start simple. I'll, I'll review the stuff that I looked at yesterday about the Rapa Umi and in the Ugaritic stuff and the the Rabbah and the Mesopotamian material and Rephaim and the Hebrew material. And I'll do. I think I was like, okay, I'll do a cursory survey of 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 words in, in Eurasian languages. In other words, languages that, that are part of the Indo-European family. And I thought probably the deciding element here, the connective element, if if we're looking at, because we know that the watchers were cultural engineers. I mean, they, they engineered city-state dwelling, civilization, everything that went along with that. Set themselves up as the gods. They were cultural engineers. No doubt that, that science was passed down to their progeny, you know, and and reemerges in the post-flood world too, which is which is really the epicenter of that paper that we're talking about, the war, of the, war of the words. Um, and so I thought, okay, the initial R and a vowel sound seems to be the, the that seems to be the morpheme that's shared here. And I thought, well, I wonder how many words I can find that have that start with that initial R vowel morpheme that mean king or ruler. And I just kept finding them. And finding them and finding them and finding them. You know, five or ten would have been interesting, but I found dozens of these things. You know, 
and I had I just I just stopped because it was a preliminary, you know, look at this stuff. And I had seventy six or so, eighty maybe, of these words from various languages. Some of which I'm I've mentioned already, um, in the context of King. But um, because of the association between that concept in the biblical material that these were the dead, usually translated as wraiths or, or the dead ones or something like that in Hebrew, but because they're, they're borrowers from Mesopotamian languages, notably Akkadian and Sumerian, uh, the rabbah or prince or ruler in, in the Akkadian and, and Sumerian material and Apsu are often found together, the Apsu being the abyss, the watery underworld of Mesopotamian mythology where, where these ancestor kings lived, god kings. And then you had the very explicit Ugaritic material from the Phoenicians who actually talk about these funerary rites that they had in, in placating and worshipping these dead god kings, the uh, Rapaumi as they're referred to in the Ugaritic material. I thought this does this doesn't seem to be coincidental, particularly if the old Proto-Indo-European heartland is the Transcaucasus, which would include that region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and part of 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 eastern and northern Turkey as well. Well, yeah. now we're bordering on the Proto-Semitic world as well, where there undoubtedly would have been diffusion. You know, the Sumerians, arguably the mother culture of, of ancient Mesopotamia, were not indigenous to that part of, of Asia. They were actually from the Transcaucasus region. And if they brought that material down from them, then it makes sense that all of these words, both in the Proto-Semitic and the Proto-Indo-European, Indo-European spread of languages and cultures are all going to be related. Uh, and I found that really compelling, you know, as a possibility uh, of how the, you know, a kind of model for how the the watchers, the pre-flood and the post-flood, early post-flood giants were able to manipulate and engineer culture. Because they, basically what they did is they took the heavenly model, just like the demonic realm does with everything, and flipped it over instead of, Instead of Yahweh as as the good, just, loving, proper king of his domain, now the king becomes a despotic absolutist. Uh, you know, an overly centralized, overly bureaucratized, and corrupt model. And that's been that sort of absolutist model has been the the, the rule not the exception in the history of human civilization and human societies. That's right. Um, you know, r republics are, are still very flawed and very corruptible, but they're the great exception to the rule in, in you know, when you take in the, sc the entire scope of human history and even prehistory. And so I, I think that, that what I did with this little preliminary paper is at least, at least teased out some questions, but I think I've also demonstrated how it was possible, how the Watchers, the pre-flood giants, and the Rephaim, post-flood giants themselves, were able to use this model to set themselves up, not only as the god kings and rulers, the first god kings and rulers of these people, because consequently, antique civilizations virtually all begin as these theocratic monarchies where they believe that their rulers are are either gods or emissaries of the gods you know you think of of ancient egypt the mesopotamian kings the, uh, e even in later iterations you know in rome the genius of the emperor w was worshiped uh, the hellenistic uh, uh, king cult so it's, it's something that, that as i say is nearly universal i think it really does demonstrate you know, how, just how they impacted so much of human culture with one concept, one cognate, one word. Yeah, and it seems to have had this uh, flow-on effect that in, in our day is just not even perceived, mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's just become... Well, and that's the subtlety of it, because the foundations of it go back so far, it's not even something that we bat an eyelash at. Yeah, well, um, it's become cross-cultural, hasn't it? It's it's yes ingrained in the the human condition now. Yes, uh, as as part of I think the the 
corruptive work of these uh, these forces that have been at play for millennia now mm-hmm. uh, and, and what they're doing to try and undermine our humanity. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of see these things uh, in their inception uh, right back in the first chapters of Genesis. Yes. And, you know, we're talking about uh, how the world came to be the way that it is at least mm-hmm. uh the the what was going through the mind of uh israelites in uh you know i believe we're talking the the exilic period when we look at the form of the primeval history that we have mm-hmm. and they're looking around uh in in this babylonian context and and seeing how these uh, overarching powers these uh sons of god the the culture heroes of uh, babylon have been at work mm-hmm. Uh, destroying uh, human identity and purpose and destiny mm-hmm. right from that point and it continues today so subtly we just we we now accept it as the human condition that that's what is normal for people to do mm-hmm. yeah and undoubtedly and I, I think another thing to take into account is that you know these traditions existed in oral form you know for god knows how long before they were even written down i mean hebrews don't even have a written language until you know 11th 10th century bc and even before this you know we have indications from the torah that there were these cultural mechanisms that were built into their culture to you know these kinds of of redundancies to make sure that those stories were passed along accurate accurately and that's why i i Whenever someone says, well, yeah, but they didn't have a written tradition or, you know, that was oral history. So it was susceptible to, you know, variation. That's true. It is. It can be susceptible to variation. But we also have examples of very complex information being passed along accurately with an oral medium. Um, the he- Hebrews were certainly masters of that. Um, the Druids in, in Celtic tradition were, were also masterful of it the um uh the anasazi in the american southwest were so so adept at it that they could predict a a celestial event you know that wouldn't happen for five generations and they would do it so well that by the time that fifth generation was born and had learned those stories they knew when and where to look uh for said celestial event and so when you see those those cultural redundancies that are built into those societies, then the degree of accuracy in, tra- in oral transmission of information from generation to generation can uh, can be very high. Yeah, I think that's, that right. that's some, I, I, something we, that's often overlooked. Yeah, we, we tend to talk about it in terms of Chinese whispers and and say, well, yeah. anyone can introduce a little change, but. Right. What we got to recognize in an oral tradition is that you have a large audience. It's not one person communicating to one person independently of everybody else. So right. you've got a group of people who are familiar with already having heard the story many times. And if you stand up and try to recite the story and make a change to it, you're mm-hmm. going to have m- most of the people in your audience uh, standing up and going, no, that's that's not how it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and it's it's self-correcting because this has been preserved for so long, mm-hmm. and you've got the the majority who are familiar correcting the minority uh, changes that are attempted to be brought in over time. So mm-hmm. it's actually quite reliable. It's a great way to preserve information over vast spans of time. Oh sure, yeah. I mean. I mean, clearly, the you know the archaeological data, you know, and this is completely bereft of of any theological or biblical perspective. But the archaeological data already demonstrates that there were civilizations millennia before Mesopotamia and Egypt, Tel Caramel in Syria, or um, Natufian Jericho in Israel, Gobekli Tepe, the Navta Playa in Egypt. You know, all all of these in in many more sites supported by archaeological data if we apply the same kinds of criteria to later civilization and these people were city-state dwellers they had centralized political and religious institutions they had stratification of society and division of labor and probably not writing in most cases but they did have complex information management which is really kind of the the preferred categorization for that now not just writing um so yeah, I mean clearly the 
these people who had oral cultures, they, they weren't literate in the, the writing sense, could build megalithic monuments. Uh, they were mathematicians and astronomers and philosophers and every, everything else. Um, yeah, we have a tendency to think that if they couldn't write, they must have been stupid. Right, exactly. Exactly. And that, that stems a lot from from the evolutionary model. You know, the, uh, evolution certainly impacted the, the biological sciences, uh, but it also impacted virtually all other fields of study. You know, history, economics, politics, sociology, they were all impacted by it. So that when the the academic blinders get put on, the only thing that historians and, and humanities scholars could see was just this sort of linear progression of cultural development along evolutionary lines. In other words, from the very simple to the, the more advanced, uh, not taking into account that civilizations ebb and flow and disappear from the archaeological record. Some others reappear. Some are completely obvious, obfuscated in the ar- archaeological record. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of the, which is why we were talking, we were talking about indigenous cultures earlier, you know, Native Americans, the Aborigines, whoever we're talking, the Kung Bushmen in, in Africa, whoever. Um, their oral culture tends to get peripheralized just for that reason, or, or perhaps even worse, like I, I said earlier, commodified because they are an oral culture and don't have a, a writing system that somehow they're, they're on a cultural evolutionary rung below, you know, we, we highly civilized city, city dwelling, you know, fast food eating people, which is really, it's irritating. I mean, it, it's, you know, the, the, the moral liberal components of the scholarly community like to thumb their nose and in, in, in virtue signal uh, about, about the faults of, of more libertarian and conservative minded scholars. And yet in, in that sort of cognitive dissonance model, they embrace a lot of the things they decry, which includes, you know, racism and all kinds of division and, mm-hmm. and, and demeaning demeaning sorts of things, dehumanizing sorts of things. All right. Now, I mentioned earlier that uh, at the moment in the podcast, we've been going through the uh, Garden of Eden and exploring mm-hmm. those kind of things. I wondered if you had any thoughts there about uh, perhaps uh, how you might describe what Eden is um, and, and particularly the the Garden of Eden and uh, – if if you think people should be looking for it, or uh, or indeed could possibly find uh, something that might point to Eden, um, where do you think they might be looking? I think that we should always be looking for Eden, but there there's a part of Eden that's left that's not there anymore that would make it the Garden of Eden. In other words, this was a really strange place. This this was not you know your your grandma's vegetable garden out back. This this was this was a place where the earthly plane and the heavenly plane intersected in some way because of the kinds of things that were going on in the garden. Adam and Eve could walk around and converse with God. They could ask him anything. You know, it was that's one of the things that makes the lies that the serpent tell tells so great is because everything that he offers them they already had. Yeah in the form of the 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 interaction that they had with the creator um but this in a lot of ways eden is really the kind of incubator for the redemption of humanity because it's with adam that the line of the messiah begins now in terms of the location of, of eden i know that this is still hotly debated but i i i tend to think that we we've got a pretty good we've got some of the coordinates that are given to us right there in genesis if we're looking at at where these rivers split we know we know two of them are and we know from geological history that you know factoring in some meandering and reshaping of the topography that the you know that generally their concourses are the same so the tigris and the euphrates well the headwaters of both of those rivers are in eastern turkey and so i tend to think that that eden was probably in that vicinity somewhere because of a number of factors. It was also significant to, you know, uh, the mountains of Ararat is, is where the ark, you know, landed after the flood and humanity, you know, 
basically repopulates the world. Abraham's Ur is 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 not is you know, his Ur of the Chaldees is not not the one that Sir Leonard Woolley identified in southern Iraq, but is likely Shanlurfa, uh, which would have been in um, the the ancient country of Aram which we have reference to. This is where Abraham sends his servant to find a, a wife uh, uh, for his uh, his son. It just makes my, it's not even called Ur of the Chaldees in uh, in the Hebrew Bible. It's called Ur, Ur Kostim. Yeah, that's the right. Chaldeans don't called Chaldeans don't even end up in southern Iraq until like the tenth tenth century BC. You know, right at that that interregnum uh, yeah. between the uh, oh, what am I what am I thinking of the um, between the the Amorite Babylonian and the the Assyrian period, basically, is when they arrive. This is a, a just in terms of the biblical narrative. This is a very significant part that I think doesn't always get its due credit because you've got some interesting things that have taken place here. I th- I think that um, one of the books that I'm writing right now with Dr. Aaron Judkins is about Gobekli Tepe in the Bible and that region of Turkey and its relationship to the Bible. And so Eden has been very much on my radar this year too. And I, I, I've got a theory, uh, Aaron and I have a theory that in the wake of, of the fall of the watchers, the reason that they, they were so instrumental in setting up places like Gobekli Tepe is because Eden was in the vicinity. And I think that they wanted to weaponize Eden in the same way that Nimrod did trying to build the, uh, uh, the tower of Babel. Right. Uh, they didn't know exactly where it was, but they knew the general vicinity. And I think they either thought that they could convince the guardians of Eden, the, the angel that was set there. I think that they either, either thought they could convince him to join the Luciferian coup, or they thought that they could just overpower him and somehow weaponize what was going on. In Eden. Because, like I say, it's this place where the earthly and the heavenly realm touch. And, yeah. you know... People can think about that as, as you know, the power of God or, or technology or whatever. At this point in time, you know, we're, we're just looking at, at, at modes of the use of knowledge. And I think that the watchers thought that they could somehow utilize that. And so for these reasons and a number of other ones that, that we discuss in the book, I, I, I still tend to think that we're looking at, at, at South Central Eastern Turkey, you know, near the headwaters of these rivers, because that seems to be a good place where they would have would have split and the significant population of course you know the demographics of eden the importance there is that you know we're talking about the beginning of the messianic line the 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 movement towards the redemption of humanity it's a fascinating question that people have been uh, pondering for millennia and uh, i think we're going to see yeah some interesting developments as uh, further explorations uh, occur, and particularly in that area, I think, because it seems to have been only recently explored with, I don't know, the, the modern tools at our disposal, I suppose. Yeah, particularly those sites like Gobekli Tepe. Um, yeah. Which is just a, a paradigm-shattering site for so many reasons. That's one of those places that sort of shows evidence that people were gathering for worship prior to gathering for agricultural purposes. That's ex- that is exactly right. Yeah, agriculture mm. is completely epiphenomenal at at Gobekli Tepe. The entire re- re- reason that that site was established was for religion. Yeah. And I think I think that I think the the clearest culprits here are the watchers i think they set themselves up as a you know i, I referenced jared diamond's you know description of of the conquest of the inca by the spanish and i think you've got a similar model at play here you know with that superior culture you know just completely changing the trajectory of of, of the you know the lesser culture not lesser in terms of of intrinsic value but just in terms of their advancements and technology and things like that completely change the way that that humanity could organize itself and and even our ideation even the way that we thought you know changed with all of that but you know there's similar things happening in all of these all these late prehistoric sites you know mesolithic neolithic sites like gobekli tepe it's amazing to me one of the things that i i saw as a professor was that i i would routinely get these these books textbooks you know and they would treat prehistory as some sort of speed bump 
you know, so that we could get along to the really interesting stuff like the Egyptians yeah. and the Mesopotamians. Why do we want to bother with these leather leather clad hunter gatherers, you know, who are every yeah. bit as intelligent as these later civilizations? Clearly, yeah. Um, well, again, when it, it's that same uh, way of thinking, isn't it? Well, if they didn't have writing, they obviously yeah, it, have it, precisely intelligent precisely. to say. Yeah, precisely. And, but it, it speaks to the, the willful ignorance or the agenda-driven reason for looking at these earlier civilizations that are, you know, the, again, depending on what timeline people subscribe to, six, five, six, seven thousand years before uh, Mesopotamia uh, and Harappa and Egypt. Um, you know, why would you do that? Because there are these decades of archaeological reports. In the case of Gobekli Tepe, 30 years worth of worth of work under under the late klaus schmidt jericho and the pre-israelite jericho stuff you know by by the likes of of no less a giant in the field than kathleen Kenyon. you know Mm. we're not talking about just just stuff that's just made up for fancy this is an ancient alien stuff this is hard scientific archaeological data that's been built up and yet textbooks refuse all but refuse beyond just giving a paragraph or two or a line of nod to places like Gobekli Tepe or Tail Caramel or Novali Chari or any of the other ones. It flies in the face of what, what history is supposed to be, if it's supposed to operate scientifically like our other disciplines and be either corroborated by new evidence or discounted by new evidence. And that's not the trend that's being followed with the emergence of, of civilization. And I, I believe in my heart and I think it, it can be demonstrated intellectually, too, that it's the same uh, impetus behind the peripheralization of, of native and indigenous uh, mythology and culture. That's right. It's because it's those truths will that, confirm, yeah. they will confirm elements of the biblical narrative. That's right. And the, the Eden story itself, in a nutshell, is communion with God before yeah. agriculture. Right, right. The result of the fall is the necessity yeah of agriculture mm-hmm. and it just uh it shocks me when I, i'm talking to believers who you know would would put the events of genesis 3 as central to their you know the, the core elements of their faith and yet they haven't intellectually apprehended that the cultural narrative we're getting through institutions is completely opposed to it and it's just as simple as this thing came before that thing yeah i think if uh, i think some of that at least some of that stems from the impact that pure materialism and naturalism have had on our theology that's right we've we've become so selectively supernatural that we're apt to discount a lot of that and and not even see what the biblical narrative allows for and how that if you if you examine it it really does allow for the natural flow of human cultural development but also also in the animal kingdoms and the plant kingdoms and our geological history you know it allows for the the you know the continual progression of those those processes yeah you first have to get people to read their bible yeah which i'm sad to say you know i mean biblical literacy i I know in the states and i think generally worldwide is just where people find themselves where where believers find themselves under persecution the most is where you find the highest biblical literacy in the church thriving i don't know maybe maybe god in his wisdom is deciding that that we need to taste some of that in order to to move back you know to that and it's not about it's not about seminary degrees and how erudite erudite you can make yourself sound by studying this stuff you know it's just it's about getting back to the word that's the that's the first step you know getting back to that's it right. be, being yeah. conversant in it i mean it, it's the word of god this is the word that was handed down to us by the creator this this is that's the right. ark through jesus christ the, and the i familiar- think we really need to have a, a better awareness in the in the body of the church about how biblical text is to be interpreted because i feel that we've got a lot of people in the church who are applying the same hermeneutic that an atheist might bring to the text yes yeah and And that's the that's the naturalism yeah that's right and so particularly the the primeval history is quite problematic for people who uh, haven't had the awareness or perhaps lack the sensitivity to things like genre and uh, ancient culture. Mm -hmm. And 
that's one of the main reasons I wanted to tackle it uh, here on this podcast is try and get people to read their Bible with fresh eyes, perhaps strive for the, the truth that comes through there uh, that would have been immediately apparent to an ancient person mm-hmm. uh, that, that we seem to have lost because we're stuck in this uh, materialist, uh, you know, everything has to be empirically based, you know, we're, we're stuck in the hard sciences and literalism. And and we've turned Jesus into a life coach. Yeah. I think you, you hit on something there. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm fond of saying that context is theology. If, if you don't understand how the, the authors of these books, how the people, the cultures that produce them were thinking about these things, then you will leave yourself bereft, I think, of the most important theology that those passages and books can convey. Again, another part of the reason why I started the Institute is, is for that purpose, is to, to talk about the cultural and supernatural context uh, of the Bible. Otherwise, we get really good at cherry picking. We get really good at only wanting to feel good around our Christian brothers and sisters and, and not wanting our consciences pricked. Sometimes you need to you need to walk away from a sermon uncomfortable. It, yeah. it, God does, doesn't. Nowhere in his word does he guarantee you that he's going to allow for you to feel, you know, like you're at a church social every time you're with a group group of fellow believers. You know, there, it's I mean, history of the church speaks to that. And certainly the entire narrative of the Bible speaks speaks to it. It's strife and suffering and and all of the things that we don't like that for some reason God has has deemed would be the necessary vehicles for developing our character. Yeah. Um well, you know, that was me uh, years ago when I got on the, the whole journey of what eventually became uh, my book and, and, and this podcast. It, it started because uh, I was invited to preach at my local congregation. I decided I was going to talk about Noah and about his obedience to God in building the ark and, and the resulting uh, salvation of humanity through the flood. And... In preaching that message, I I made a, a fatal mistake because inevitably you have to address that uh, question of, okay, so why does God bring a flood? Why did all these other people uh, not survive and, and all this kind of thing? And my answer for that at that time uh, was, well, you know, these people, you know, they had their chance, but they were too far gone. You know, God wasn't going to save them because, um, you know, they were just really bad people and they'd done a lot of bad stuff. And, you know, yeah, they uh, they, they, were just, they were just too bad. And aren't we lucky that uh, there was one good guy left? And it wasn't until, you know, minutes after that, uh, sermon was finished. I was still standing on the pulpit, and I thought to myself, "This, this is troubling. I'm not content with this idea that the same God that forgives me would wipe out entire populations on the basis that they were sinners like me." And it was that discomfort that you know really got under my skin and got me digging for answers mm-hmm. and i started going back through the primeval history and i'm sort of combing through it and crawling through do i understand all these things because there's got to be something that led up to the flood that gives us the clue as to what made it necessary and why things worked out the way they did and then of course i hit that word nephilim mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't think I understand this word. Next thing you know, I'm down the rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, here we are today. Yep, that's how it happens, my friend. Um, mm. Not not terribly dissimilar in, in my case. But, you know, uh, it was Steve Quayle, I think you said that, um, you know, the Nephilim, the giants are kind of like the, the Rosetta Stone for the Bible. Yeah. Um, and I think there's some truth to that because... Um, once you begin to understand that, you know, their role in everything, you not only understand more about the primeval history that we're talking about here, 
uh, and that it was more than just uh, there were a bunch of sinful people and God, God got tired of it uh, in the justification for the flood. All of that has to do with this other, you know, the watchers, the Nephilim. It has to do with their, their entire demeanor, their entire existence. It has to do with the fact that God's, yes, God is loving and God is patient, but his justice is also perfect. And it was all part of this re redemptive plan that, that had been set in motion, you know, since the beginning. But it mm -hmm. also explains, you know, the pre their presence in later tribes, post-flood tribes, and the Levant in particular. It explains why during the conquest period, for instance, why so many of these towns had to be eradicated. You know, in some cases, down to the last man, woman, and child. On the surface, that just makes Yahweh look like some other you know, out of a dozen jealous desert gods that existed at that time, that mm. he just sort of fits that maniacal personality. When that's not the case at all. That's right. You know, it's another instance of God's justice and patience being perfect. Yeah. And one ends where the other begins. Um, and, you know, with the demise of the pre-flood giants, that's your introductory chapter in, in biblical demonology right there. You yeah. know, that was another mis misunderstood concept on my part for many years until I until I started looking into uh, Mike's work, Mike Heiser, you know, about the disembodied spirits of, of the Nephilim. I'm like, yeah, well, that's that's why when you see these possessed people throwing around half a dozen other people that are trying to throw them around, well, they're descendants of, of giants. They retain the strength, the knowledge, the that's right. All of all of those kinds of, of tools that they would have had. Mm. Um, and and we tend to think of strength as being muscular strength. You know, we're looking at it in mechanical terms, and we're saying, well, how yeah. can a how can a, a little child have the power to uh, to overpower a, a bunch exactly. of men? Exactly. We now and, we've now tread into the supernatural and the extra dimensional mm, realm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this uh, is is what I talk about in my book is uh, understanding different types of uh, bodies and different types of glory. You know, when mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. they talk in the Bible about glory, I think they're tapping into a kind of power that we can't put down to mechanics and, and physics. Yes, that's very, I'm going to have to go back and look at your, look at your work on that. That's very, very thought provoking. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, even I the phrase, that... the phraseology that gets thrown around, you know, in, in, in the apocryphal material, like the, the judgment that's handed down to uh, the, the giants, you, you'll be unclean spirits. Yeah. Well, that's one of the most common you know, phrases in the Greek and the New Testament used to describe the, the de these demonic entities that Christ and his disciples and generations of Christians encounter. Taking it back to, you know, why this, this material is relevant, the concepts are relevant, is because they, they make, a, they answer a lot of questions that would superficially remain just from a basic reading of Scripture. Yeah. And I think Derek uh, Gilbert asked me one time if I could, in two words, if I could explain why giants are important in the Bible. The two words that I, I give people are Caesarea Philippi. Yeah. Jesus's visit to Caesarea Philippi at the foot of Mount Hermon, which was originally known as Peneus, the shrine to the Greek god Pan, which I've, if people are familiar with my work, I, I take Pan all the way back to Az Azazel. I think we're dealing with the same, yeah. you know, iteration of that entity. But that location was not just some offhand stop. It was not just because it was outside of Herod Antipas's jurisdiction that they were going to take a little, you know, vacation in this little Greco-Roman city. It was because it was at the foot of Mount Hermon. It That's was right. where all of this mess began. It was where the giants, the first giants were born. It was where, you know, you got Bashan there, Og's kingdom. You've got land that was allotted to the apostate tribe of Dan, just to the west across the valley. It's it's this back backdrop that's just pregnant with all kinds of cultural and religious meaning. And so when Jesus says, you know, upon this rock, I will build my assembly. He's taking that title back of sons of God that we were talking about at the beginning of of yeah. of our conversation. Exactly. You know, because he's not just talking about a, a, a you know. And it is hearkening back to like the Athenian assembly, you know, the the body that, that governed the Greek poloi. But it's also an allusion to the Olympian assembly. You know, in other words, he's saying he's talking not only to his disciples, but he's talking to all these spiritual entities as well. It's like, mm -hmm. look, you guys really screwed up. You're no longer part of the divine council. You're no longer part of my assembly. This is my assembly now, the church. And, you know, again, just from a surface reading, you don't 
you don't get all these things. You don't get all these layers of, of meaning there. So it's a few verses. Okay, yeah, Jesus visits Caesarea Philippi. Who do Peter, who do people say that I am? Yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to establish my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Every, every nuance of what's being spoken there, the transfiguration event that occurs you know, just after that, which in my mind took place on Mount Hermon, all of these things become more meaningful because of the context, the sacred geographical context. And, you know, this whole statement of, of, of Jesus that, that he's going to uh, to build his his church or his assembly, as you said, you know, we can go right back to, to Eden with that. Yeah. Uh, and one of the, I'm, I'm going to uh, tease my listeners here because I'm not going to be talking about Genesis 5 on the podcast for some time, but when you look at the genealogies and the ages that people lived and all the rest of it, I find it very interesting that Adam lives to 930. And, you know, they're doing all sorts of uh, amazing things with these ages and uh, all this in the, in the genealogies, and they're, they're making statements with numbers. And to me, that 930, if we're taking 1,000 as the, the, the perfect number in that sense, that it's kind of a fullness, uh, he's shy of that by 70, which is a significant number when we start looking at divine counsel, uh, imagery, and that sort of thing. And it sort of indicates that Adam should have remained there, and he's come short, and the work of Christ is is to effect that restoration mm-hmm. which we see uh, there on the uh, on the on the slopes of Herman right yeah okay so uh, just uh, let our listeners know where they can get in touch with you where they can find your work and a little sure. about the uh, Academy yeah absolutely um, well people can go to our websites which are Still under renovation and construction right now, but they can go to them, burtonbeyond.com. And then the Institute of Biblical Anthropology is tioba.org. Uh, people can follow me on on social media. Uh, I've, I've got a lot of content on YouTube. I've got, um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and getting on some alternative social media right now in the event, you know, because you never know when the sensors are going to blast you, you know, or, yeah, or right. completely remove you. So I'm setting up, you know, these alternative platforms. So I'm, I'm on Gab and I'll soon be on, on uh, Parler and Rumble and some other ones too. Um, but in terms of uh, the Institute, I, ha- I have a number of certification programs and people can take classes from me on these. I- I've got program in biblical anthropology, which, which covers a lot of historical and cultural information about the biblical world. There's biblical demonology, uh, the preternatural morphology, which is the, like I said, the Monsters 101 coursework is really popular right now as well. Um, I also have a, a, a world mythology uh, from biblical perspective certification, and I also have programs on the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean worlds, uh, and a fledgling uh, New Testament Greek program as well. And this week, uh, I'm running a sale. You can get any one of those programs for $99 US. And I'll, I'll probably keep that going through the weekend, if not next week. Uh, but if people if people are interested in that, they can email me at professorburton at yahoo.com uh, and just put um, answers to giant questions or something like that in the subject line, and I'll, I'll I'll give you the same deal even if it even if the deal expires before then. Excellent, good uh, deal. But, Thank you. But the the institute is is um, something that I envisioned a number of years ago. I, f- I felt God increasingly calling me to spend more time doing it, and and it, it's it's one part teaching, but it's also there are also research projects. Uh, that are growing under its auspices as well. Some are related to book projects that I'm dealing with, like the uh, the aforementioned Gobekli Tepe book and um, uh, the project with Doug Van Dorn on the Serpent Mount, uh, Bashan, and lots of other potential projects that are brewing right now that I can't really say a whole lot about because they haven't taken really a cohesive form. In a nutshell, that's that's what the Institute of Biblical Anthropology is and what it uh, what it's designed to do is to I've described it as Sunday school meets the X-Files because it accounts it accounts for the sort of conventional stuff that you would expect in biblical studies. But we're also looking at the supernatural perspective here that often gets sidelined in a lot of, of teaching materials that, you know, unfortunately amount to a lot of bubblegum 
you know, kind of woo-woo, Christian woo-woo. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that that's essentially what the the institute is designed for. And I have about I have about seventy students right now. Right. Always room for more. Okay. Well, uh, we've chatted about this earlier. I'm actually interested in that myself, so uh, I'll, I'll certainly be following up on that. And uh, hey, yeah, hopefully some of our listeners will pick it up too. It'll be great. Absolutely. Like I say, there's always room for more. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Judd Burton, for appearing on the show. And uh, it'd be a pleasure to have you on again. We might uh, get into talking about witchcraft and vampires or something like that. And, uh, Absolutely. My yeah. pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That'll be a great time. Thanks very much. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe to tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.